This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper with you. Let's catch up with our reporters for a trip around a big country. This week, we're visiting a medieval-style castle, complete with turrets and battlements. It's perched on the top of a hill in rural Tasmania, and it's the dream home of a self-confessed history buff. We'll hear how a farmer's search for the right type of cattle to tread lightly on the land led him to a breed used by Zulu tribes in Africa, and we'll meet a woman who's bringing a taste of her Taiwanese home to a small farming community in the South Australian Mallee. The locals are delighted to have a dining option other than the pub or the bakery. The locals really, 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 really support me. I think before I open Demi's Kitchen, I don't really know about town people because we just go to work and go home and go to work and go home. And since I opened Demi's Kitchen because I like to chat with people, so I know more about the family and the people and more business around town. Feeding her town and getting to know its people, that story is coming up. First today, we're headed to a country footy match in northern Victoria. Sporting clubs like the local football and netball teams are often the heart and soul of rural communities, and it's been the case in the tiny town of Quambatook for more than a century. But as Jeremy Story Carter explains, it's an era that's drawing to a close. It's the final home and away game for the Quambatook football and netball club, and emotions in the farming town are high. We've fought for a long time to keep going, and we are very proud of this club, you know. Kelly Burmester used to ride her bike 17 kilometres to get to netball practice. For 30 years, she's pulled on the red, white and black of her beloved Quambatook Saints. Now, after more than a century, the club is folding. It's heartbreaking, so it worries me not having a, a club in the town anymore, but the reality is... We're not the only club in this situation. There's a specialness to a place like this. What do you think we stand to lose from losing clubs like this? There's definitely a specialness um, in places like this. You know, your football and netball club is your heart of your town. So it was a tough decision to make. I mean, the majority of members, volunteers, players... They live a minimum of 50 kilometres away from here. And the reality is when the club folds, how often am I going to come back to Quamby? Quambatook is shrinking. The local school closed five years ago and the town no longer has enough young people to sustain the club, nor the parents who live locally to fill crucial volunteer roles. It's a far cry from when famed country musician John Williamson grew up in the town's heyday. I think I'm very lucky to to be brought... When the town was probably at its peak, it means a huge amount to me. It was a beautiful little town to be brought up in as a a boy. The Mallee Boy singer retains a great sense of pride at having represented the local footy team. The sad thing about it more than anything is, uh, you know, I think the football teams pull the towns together, you know. like For me to to become a part of the football team was, uh, was joining the legends that I knew as a kid, you know what I mean? That's really important. Footy clubs around the country have suffered during the pandemic, but Quambatook's problems run deeper. In the past 10 years, the town has lost 130 people and now has an ageing population of little more than 200. Over in the Quambatook General Store, Shelley of Spain seems to know just about every one of them. John! Hello there. After going to school here and returning later in life to run the shop, she's witnessed the changes. Back in the day when we had 160 kids at the school, there were houses everywhere. So we've gone from all these little farmlets 
to great big farms that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and don't need the workers because the machinery is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we've, we've lost not just the small farms, but we've lost the workers on the bigger farms as well. Less workers means uh, fewer families. It certainly it has effect, uh, a knock-on effect to the small towns um, because we're losing those workers that perhaps would have shopped in town, their kids went to school in town, their kids played sport in town. So, yeah, not, I'm not blaming the farmers for getting bigger. Um, that's the, the, the way of the world. But um, it certainly has a knock-on effect of, of, the, of the town. Club legend Malcolm Knight remembers a Quambatook with multiple banks, pubs and government offices. Employees from those businesses would then double as volunteers in the football and netball club. It takes a lot to run a football club, but when you've got that many people around, you have, have a lot of fun. We've got 65-year-old people running water and things like that, so just we haven't got the young people in the club. Back at the footy ground, young club president Reese Carmichael is preparing to take the field for the seniors with a heavy heart. It is quite upsetting because we've all put a lot into this football club and sort of the, the older blokes that are in the town, this, a lot of them come here to you know, have a few beers on a Thursday night and catch up and you know, fill in their days, doing a few little odd jobs around. I think it'll, it'll hurt them a lot more than probably what it'll hurt the younger blokes. And as someone who is younger, do you think we stand to lose something if... These smaller towns, and particularly smaller footy clubs, don't. there's not really a lane for them to exist? Yeah, definitely. I am a bit worried about the future. I don't. I think football clubs are going to find it harder and harder to go on into the future, um, especially those that are, you know, you're half an hour out of town because that, that makes a difference. Um, yeah, I'm nervous for the clubs that are just that little bit too far out. Cheered on by a loving crowd, the seniors footy team overwhelms their country opponents to record a dominant win. Tears are shed and mates are hugged at the final siren. And with the prospect of an unlikely premiership still alive, there are at least another few memories to be made yet. My name is Shannon Dracon. Welcome to my castle. Dracon is a, a word for dragon, isn't it? Yeah, it's ancient Greek for a dragon. Real name? Well, I, I did have one, yes. Smith? <laughs> sure. <laughs> On top of a hill in the northwest Tasmanian town of Burnie, this self-named dragon has built himself a fitting home and realised a long-time dream of living in a castle. Now I can die happy. My brother had a wedding in Ireland and he hired out a castle in the early 2000s. Always wanted to stay in a castle, so I took that dream. Next uh, box was pretty much to own a castle. I built one. I suppose you can say I'm a lounge chair history buff and I'm not a cookie-cutter person. I rounded a corner way down there and I saw it immediately on the hill and it was very striking, a castle <laughs> on the hill. You must be getting a lot of attention. Certainly, but ultimately I was just surprised that this hill was vacant for so long. And it's beautiful views everywhere. Ocean views, mountains. I would have loved to have had a river, but a uh, hill was the next best thing. G'day, I'm Rick Eaves. I'm taking a look through this impressive medieval-looking structure that Shannon Draken has named Dragon's Roost. I had the castle design ready to go, and then I just had to find the right place to build it. I'm not from Tasmania, but I love it here. 
And you came here to pursue this dream? Yeah, the land here was ideal. Turns out that the people here are, are really great. What I saved in the cost of the land buying in Tassie, I spent in construction. Because I've built in New South Wales, Queensland, I've owned property in the NT as well. You said you had the castle design ready. Is it based on something particular in literature or history? No, or? no. More like a medieval aesthetic European castle. Where did you find those bricks? Well, they're made in Melbourne. And uh, how'd you go finding a bricklayer? Because they're thin on the ground, really. Oh, that was up to the builder. Uh, I couldn't be happier with my builder. It was important to tap into the local resources that I could. So what are the specs? Well, I've got four towers. Ended up with square. It's just more functional. A lot of modern internal structure, but with a few theme rooms. Dungeon? Unfortunately, no. I oh, would great have. to have a dungeon. I had to cut costs. If you've got four towers, do you have to employ four sentries? Or do you just do a lot of running up and down stairs when you need to check on them? <laughs> I was hoping to build some trebuchets. I don't think the local council probably uh, would be appreciative <laughs> of uh, siege machines. So which are the trebuchets? Uh, like a catapult. Yeah, you can still keep buckets of hot tar or whatever it was they like to pour on the uh, scaling well, forces. I'm not expecting these sieges. But I'm prepared. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could we have a look through? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. I can show you the Bailey courtyard. So you, you enter through a beautiful arch. Well, this is the main keep. And the only doors of egress are in here. I guess a defensible position. Uh, <laughs> I'm the, loving the language. This archway is uh, equivalent to one you'll see between the main keep and the kitchen as well. Looking for like a bit of a zen garden type thing, maybe a little water feature. I do have a lot of plans for the outside, help support local wildlife. That's a beautiful big door. Oh yeah, iron reinforced. Walk through pantry. So you usually find like pheasants and uh, whatever the hunters have brought in. <laughs> Oh, I'd Bit love of pig. To. Yeah. <laughs> Very authentic medieval microwave there. Yeah. Have to have um, live in the 21st century. <laughs> Into the main keep where there's a bit of an echo where I don't have as much furniture at the moment. It's almost like a lobby in a hotel, I guess. I suppose you could say that. Yeah. Uh, especially with the mezzanine. Tell me a bit more about your obsession with things medieval and does fantasy come into that? Like fantasy oh, literature and Lord of the Rings? Definitely and... a big fan of fantasy yeah. uh, and sci-fi. Is there one for you that's like the, the greatest of all time, the most oh, affecting really. for you? No. There's, there's a lot. Like the genre, sword and sorcery be more my favourite, pretty much living in my, my fantasy. What do you do, by the way? Uh, I was in the military for 20 years and currently doing full-time study at uh, UTAS. I almost finished uh, an associate degree, design technology. Games room. Oh, it's the games room. Yeah. With a uh, gaming table. With... An impressive table. Yeah from uh, the US. It was a Kickstarter project. They shoot that idea out to the world and then people fund that project. Their role was uh, making purpose-built game tables. This one has power. USBs and everything built yeah, into the Yeah, absolutely. As a nice function, it lifts up to a gaming um, platform underneath. So these panels come out and you've got a plain matte surface underneath. Any sort of board games, tabletop games, role-playing oh, games. Some uh, really nice decoration around yep. here. Dragons which is, which and is, dragon fire. And... Which is replaceable. So I can put different motifs. To suit the theme of yeah, the night. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You've got a lot of figurines over there. <laughs> yeah. It's another hobby of mine. I paint. There is tabletop war games, sci-fi with Star Wars, fantasy. to more common things which people will probably know as Warhammer. And is there a community of people here who yeah. are into this? Yeah. There's actually um, clubs. There's also role-playing as well, so Dungeons and Dragons. What is that core appeal to... To me? Yeah, to those kind of fantasies, you know, playing for your life against, uh, uh, you know, dark I, forces. I like to escape to a, a fantasy world where there's magic or something which is not the current mundane world that we're living in now. 
So given that you've got a castle now, you've actually got a castle, yeah. do you need to consider giving yourself a title? <laughs> uh, that's not how titles work uh, anymore. It is if least. you're the only one with a castle, you can make up the rules here. I'll be asking for taxes from everyone, you know, for five miles around. Oh, the council would love that. <laughs> nah, that's, that's a bit of a jerk move. I didn't do it, I didn't, didn't do it for ego. Yeah. I do want a water feature, maybe a, a footbridge going over that. So by water feature, you mean moat or...? We'll say a pond. At the front door, maybe? Or uh, just drawbridge? In front of the front door. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do plan on doing a little bit more to this. Can we have a look at a tower? Yeah, all we'll ghosts. Oh, awesome. Too soon for ghosts, isn't it? There have been no ghosts. <laughs> Love it. So you can stand there and sort of peep through the turrets. Yeah. You really do look over the kingdom from here, don't you? Mm. Even a bit of the wharf. Oh, yeah. Pretty amazing. This was just a hill overgrown with blackberries and maintained by a really kind cattle farmer. Murray's done a really great job to clean this place up prior to me moving here. Clouds are really closing in around the dragon's roost. Great cloak weather and we should totally bring back cloaks. Don't know if I can just walk around town with them but definitely keen on just wearing them in the castle for sure. I guess John Snow was making cloaks look pretty good there a couple of years ago wasn't he? Well that's it I mean I had a friend of mine actually make a cloak that resembled a John Snow cloak. So I had the linen cloth, complete with wolf fur around the shoulders. Uh, wasn't genuine wolf. Good. Uh, it was fake wolf. Really nice and warm. Shannon Draken, who has built his very own modern medieval-style castle on a hilltop in Burnie in northwest Tasmania. He gave our reporter Rick Eves a look around, and you can see it too. There's photos and a video on the RN homepage. Head online and look for A Big Country under the Programs tab. You are listening to A Big Country on RN. My name's Clint Jasper, and still to come, we'll hear of a farmer's efforts to regenerate the land and improve the soil while still running cattle. And we'll visit a town in the South Australian Mallee where residents are getting to try food that's a bit different to their normal pub or bakery fare. In a church hall in a small farming town in the South Australian Mallee, these young people are having a go at making their own sushi rolls. Have to spread it. I'm trying to spread out the rice and then I'm going to start putting on the ingredients after. So I'm up to the first stage. Mm -hmm. Chicken? Chicken, yes. <laughs> Until recently, food options were pretty limited here in Pinaru, a farming community close to the Victorian border. The only food outlets in town were the two pubs and a bakery. But these days, it's different. With takeaway sushi and other Asian meals, popular choices among these locals. Yeah, so being able to um, get sushi and some different food here in the Mallee is um, yeah, definitely good, hence why we go every week. So use your finger. Hello, I'm Eliza Burlage, and I've come along to this workshop where participants are getting hands-on experience making sushi rolls. Try to praise a little bit. Make your, the end of the seaweed attach the rice so they can stay together. They're being taught by Yuen Sai, known in her new hometown as Demi. That's it. Sushi. Sushi! <laughs> Since she arrived in Australia as a backpacker from Taiwan, Demi has worked in a range of jobs. First job is was a nanny in Sydney, and after three months I have to go to a, do a farm job because I need to collect my... Um, second year visa. So I traveling around Victoria to find a job can get good money because I want to save money. Save enough money, go back to my country, open my own shop. Then I met my husband 
then we end up in Pinaru. Many beautiful things happen. It was here in this tight-knit community of Pinaru that Demi realised her long-time dream, opening Demi's Kitchen, a food van selling Asian and Australian-style takeaway foods. And I selling some dumplings and my hometown-style chicken, salt and pepper chicken, and some fish and chips. People like it. The inspiration for the food van came to Demi while she was working in a local vegetable packing shed. And one day when I was working at Onion Shed, I picked the onions. You know, when you your hand is working, but your brain is thinking other things. It's the um, factory worker <laughs> always do. <laughs> so I was thinking, 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 why cannot I just start? So one day I decide just go to see the lady who owned my food van before. I want to ask her, where did you buy the food van? I want to get one. And she asked me, who want who want buy one? I say me. And she she say I want to sell. And I say I want to buy. And she say oh, and how much you want? And I say how much you want to sell? <laughs> and she say twenty five thousand. I say and I, uh, I just go home and think about it. And was it difficult to to uh, purchase the van and get all the permits and everything involved to to open Demi's Kitchen? I think the hardest part is you're brave. You need to brave enough, be brave, and you have to um, trust yourself. Stay, you you can do it. Since opening the food van, Demi has received a strong following of repeat customers among this tight knit community. My customer, the locals really, 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 really support me. Every time when the traveller goes through, and because the traveller travelling time is almost always the, the public holiday or the school holiday, so of course the local is going away. So when sometimes have some traveller always ask me, how's the business going? Is that, it, it feel like my business is not going well, but, <laughs> but my business is going really, really well because the local really support me. You can see every customer. It's not just opening hours from 10 to 8, it, including you have to get all the stock and ready all the stock. And because I made my own dumplings, so you have to spend more time to make dumplings and the chicken. And yeah, you have to organize your time well, or you just keep walking and working and working. <laughs> Feeding her town has given Demi an opportunity to get to know and appreciate Pinaru and its people. I think before I opened Demi's Kitchen, I don't really know about town people because we just go to work and go home and go to work and go home. And since I opened Demi's Kitchen, because I like to chat with people, so I know more about the family and the people and more business around town. So we're looking at Nguni Cross cattle at the moment. Like we want to go to a fairly high Nguni content. How do you spell that? N-G-U-N-I. They've had thousands of years of history, Zulu tribe cattle. On his family's farm in the Noosa hinterland on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, Brian Usher has found just the right breed of cattle to suit this land after a long search. When we came here, I came with the years and years of being a trader. So I'd buy, put a bit of weight on, sell. Well, in this country here, which is particularly moist and highly parasitic, we really struggled to get animals that were right for their climate. So we're forever having to treat animals and it's not what we like to do. We're trying to get to be a lot cleaner, greener and eliminate chemical use. So we searched and found a breed called Nguni. They are 
parasite resistant, so the ticks do not bother them, and probably not worms either if you see the condition of the cattle in, you know, in a very moist environment. And a little bit smaller animals, so they're good in the hills and good on poorer quality feed. Even though we're really green and lush, our proteins aren't high here on the coastal country, but they do really well on it exceptionally well. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. I'm here with Bryant at this property in the picturesque hills of Kinkin, where he and his wife Susie are embracing regenerative farming. When we came here at the end of 2018, take over the farm full time ourselves, we effectively did a completely new rebuild on everything. So we put a water system in, we put fences in, we built a whole new set of yards. We built them with the thought that we might be 80 when we're still running the joints, so they're all air-operated and up-to-date, modern set of yards. Very impressive. We've just come up the road a little bit, and you've got an off-stream watering point here. Yeah, well, water infrastructure was probably our first thing we did. Through all my um, time with the regenerative ag, realised you can do a lot by having water in the right place. So this is what you would call a cell centre, and it's a trough, which is fed from a tank that's on the top of the hill, gravity-fed and it services six paddocks. So effectively we can just open up any one of the six paddocks to come to this one water and it cuts down your overall infrastructure build cost. So it's got posts and between each of those is electric fencing and you can just open the cell that you want to let the animals into. Correct, yeah. I've just used white electrical tape, homemade handles so they're nice and cheap. You just open up the paddock that the animals are actually in at the time and we keep all our animals in one mob effectively only maintaining and making sure they've got one water at any one time. So management's a lot simpler when you get fully set up for regenerative style farming. We use the animals as the engine to fix up and help the environment. It's transforming really, really quickly. We're very pleased. Brian Usher, there are people who are very concerned that animals damage the land. How are you saying that they actually help it? It's management. Yes, an animal can damage the land. If it's left there in the same spot and continually grazes what it likes, it will continually wipe out that plant. You get more plant action through having an animal graze it and then you move it on so that you get recovery. So the system's most powerful part is the recovery. The animal action, hey, they're a microbial factory walking around, so they're putting manure and urine on the ground, and that activates the biology in the soils and the plants. So you let them graze what you want and get them off for recovery. So recovery is probably the most important part of the management system. And I tell you, they can do it without me having to be chasing around trying to change something with a tractor or a bit of fertiliser or something else. It's amazing the change used in the right way. So it's management. Have you sectioned off your paddocks so that you're rotating them through? Yeah, I call it time control grazing. We've got 27 paddocks looking to go to 35. And that allows us time for the recovery. And how much land do you have here? 400 acres. But yeah, we work them through those 27 paddocks and pretty much they move every day to a fresh feed. The biggest one I've got is about six hectares. The one they were in yesterday was only two and a half. They can do quite considerable amount of change in 24 hours. A, they trample it down. B, they chew the tops out of you know, a lot of the grass. So when they walk out, there's still a huge amount of body of feed there. In this really wet time, you see and you think, oh, they're damaging it. But the recovery afterwards is phenomenal. And by the time they're back to that paddock, you wouldn't know they were there. And that's the brilliant part about how we do it. And I just showed, showed you, Jennifer, one that they'll be going into tomorrow, which is beautiful, lush, dark green, at least two foot tall, and they get totally fresh feed tomorrow, or starts this afternoon. I do my moves at about 4.30. 
which has a bit of um, animal psychology in it because they're resting now and they'll rest until about 3.30, 4 o'clock. Then they'll get up and when they get up, the calves come looking for them to have a feed and at that point, I like to be able to move them. So I, I move everything together. If you wait a bit longer, calves will go in a different direction, mothers start grazing again. If you go too early, you've got to try and actually stir them off their rest and that uh, doesn't easily happen. We've just gone through a paddock where they've really flattened it so then you rest it for a month. What have you noticed in terms of the weeds? I don't focus on the weed. <laughs> but when you do observe, a lot of the common weeds from overgrazed country where the people don't move their animals around, they dissipate, they disappear. Cotton bush is one, milk thistle, a little bit less tobacco bush. Um, it comes down to the health of the soil will normally grow a plant that's relevant. So if you're bare and you've taken away your topsoil and got no organic matter, then you'll grow succession plants that have got a deep root, they're probably prickly and they're probably not edible, and that's what nature's trying to repair by using those plants. Once you get more health into your soil, biology's working well, you grow grasses and strong grasses, and so they tend to outgrow the less desirable ones. So we're getting there. <laughs> Brian Usher, who was explaining his regenerative farming system in the Sunshine Coast hinterland to our reporter, Jen Nichols. Before that, Eliza Burlidge visited Pinaroo, where Demi's kitchen food van has a strong following among locals. You can read more on that story and all of the stories on today's program. Just hit up the RN homepage and look for A Big Country under the Programs tab. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.